Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing a mix of career content, coaching, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Beth Hillman. Beth and I became good friends while in the Air Force ROTC program together at Duke a long time ago. Beth was just named the president and chief executive of the National 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York. Beth started her career as a U.S. Air Force officer. Her first assignment was with the North American Aerospace Defense Command, better known as NORAD. Following that assignment, Beth served as an instructor at the U.S. Air Force Academy for several years before leaving the Air Force and moving into the civilian world. She'd earned a master's in history at the University of Pennsylvania while in the Air Force and went on to earn a law degree and a PhD in history at Yale. She then moved into academia, teaching law at Rutgers before becoming provost, academic dean, and professor at UC Hastings. Along the way, she wrote a book and co-authored another on military justice. Beth was named president of Mills College in Oakland in 2016, a role she held until the merger of Mills into Northeastern University earlier this year. Beth is an active advocate and volunteer, focusing on education, civil rights, and social action. She's a recognized expert on military law and on sexual harassment in the military. She lives in Oakland with her wife, Trish, and blended family of five mostly college-stage children. Uh, She'll be moving back to the East Coast for her upcoming job. Beth, welcome. Thank you for your service back in the day, and congratulations on the new role. Thank you, JR. It's great to have you on the show. Let's talk a little bit about the new role. So you're going to be leading the National 9-11 Memorial and Museum. You're coming out of academia, most recently as a college president. So how did you find your way into this current role? You know, sometimes jobs find you. And that's definitely been the case with this one. Over the last year, I was really focused on closing the deal to merge Mills College into Northeastern. So sort of the job I was in was pretty consuming and I was not looking at other opportunities. And yet, my wife and I had reached a place in our life where most of our kids were off of college now, and we really didn't think we would probably stay in the Bay Area forever. So we were starting to think about what might happen next. And then this popped up. So the search firm, the Memorial Museum had hired, reached out to me. Usually I don't respond to those emails, but this one I didn't. And I, so I picked up the phone and called them and, and started talking to them. And then it, it went from there. And I found it really compelling. And in fact, when they wrote the press release and the description of why I was the right person for the job, it felt like I was a completely different person than I had been here at Mills College, where I'm president of a small college. And then I'm going to the CEO of a a national military and, I mean, not military event, you know, a tragic event of terrorism, international terrorism in the United States, in New York. But to go to 9-11 was just drawing a different set of experiences for me and felt like circling back to where I had started in many ways. Yeah, and you've done different things. We'll get to that over the course of your career. And 
sometimes you you sort of pluck different combinations of things that you've done in the past for different roles. And so it seems like that's what's going on in your case. It's just a different different mix of skills than what you needed to be a college president. I think that's exactly right. And you're always sort of this cumulative um, sum of the parts. And the things that I've learned in the past have always helped me out, even in really different kinds of roles. And after I came to Mills, I realized that being a sort of chief executive of a nonprofit is a lot more like running a business than it is like being a faculty member. And so running a museum is a lot more like running a business than it is like a lot of other things that I did. And so the experiences that I've had at Mills, I found really directly relevant to the kinds of challenges and opportunities I anticipate at the National 9-11 Memorial Museum. Yeah. You had your final round interview with Mike Bloomberg, who's the chair of the board of the museum. What was it like having breakfast with him and discussing the role and pitching yourself as the right candidate. It was exciting. I was a little intimidated and I had spent a lot of time preparing and he was based on what I had heard about him. You know, I asked people about him and I read about him. Somebody like Michael Bloomberg has a big profile out there that you can find. It's not like it's somebody you're not going to know who he is when you get there. And I found him very true to form. He was warm. He was personable. He was generous. He was low key great mastery of the details and tremendous experience. And that's what I walked away realizing is that the chairman of this organization is very engaged and very much wants it to succeed and has been, he's the reason that it exists. I mean, it was no easy task to build that memorial museum and he brought together the political and economic forces to overcome really what seemed like insurmountable obstacles to build this incredible monument to the tragedy and to the resilience of the city and of the country. And it was, it felt that way when I talked to him. He was funny too. You know, he was, he was really what you would expect. He poured me coffee. That felt weird when I walked in. He's like, do you want some coffee? I said, sure. And um, he got that for me, which felt weird to me. Like he's Michael Bloomberg, you know? So, but mm. uh, it was good. And I, I learned more about sort of his approach to it too. I was back for the chance. It's always great to meet people who've had a, cut a great swath through the world. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, this is a very personal thing for him given his tenure as mayor in New York and really the face of their response after 9-11 in New York. So I'm sure relative to most nonprofit board chairs, you're going to get an extra level of attention and focus from him. And that will be a good thing. No, I think you're totally right. And it was literally an election day in New York on 9-11. They called it off after the attacks. And then he won that election. And then he served three terms as the mayor of New York. And the reimagining of the World Trade Center site after the tragedy was definitely a big part of what he did while he was mayor, along with a whole lot of other pretty uh, remarkable things. Yeah. So coming out of academia, this is really your first foray into the nonprofit world of this sort. So what are you doing to get ready for the role? A lot of listening, which is usually what you end up doing when you're doing something new. So fortunately, the organization is really ready for the transition. They have a CEO who's ready to step down and who's been there for a long time and successful. And they have a a great staff, a great board, a very engaged community around them. So I'm trying to learn as much as I can about the operation. And then also talking to folks who are now colleagues in that part of the world, you know, museum leaders, heads of public cultural institutions to try to understand that because that's a little different than the higher ed world that I've been in for a while. Absolutely. So Billy Crystal, John Stewart, Robert De Niro, all on your board. Who are you most excited about meeting? 
<laughs> I don't know, but but I have to say John Stewart gets the most votes from my friends and family. So they're like, you're going to meet John Stewart. So they're excited about that. So I was excited to meet Mike Bloomberg. And also, honestly, the trustees are just an amazing group altogether, yeah. not only the entertainers. You know, this is, it's an, it's a wide ranging and really remarkable group that yeah. have decided to invest in something that's awfully heavy, a heavy burden to carry to hold this sacred trust of this space where so many people were killed and yet be a place of inspiration and education for all the folks who visit. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm excited to meet all of them. Yeah. I think I would be excited to meet all of them too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's go back to the beginning. So you grew up in Pittsburgh. You went to Duke. So how did you end up at Duke? Why did you choose electrical engineering? Why did you decide to do ROTC? Oh, it's funny, JR. I feel like you probably knew my answers when I was 17 or 18. And now I can give you my answers when I'm not 17 or 18, since you were there with me. But I uh, I wanted to leave Pittsburgh, which I later realized is a true of a lot of people who grow up in Rust Belt communities. And uh, I love Pittsburgh. And uh, I remain a Steelers fan. Pirates are having a rough season. We'll see what can happen this year for the Steelers. I remained pretty identified with the city of Pittsburgh, but it didn't seem like a place of opportunity or it didn't seem like a place that I would stay. I just wanted to, to see what else was out there and I wanted to leave. So I was definitely looking outside of the area. And it was really basketball that drew me to Duke because I had older brothers. They were basketball players. I was keen on basketball. Duke had gone to the Final Four in 1978 when I was paying attention. And I really liked that team, Gene Banks and Jim Spinarkle, Mike Jaminski. And so I was... That's a silly reason, but I was interested. And I chose Duke too because I was interested in both engineering and non-engineering fields as potential majors. And I liked the idea of Duke being not only an engineering school, but having strong engineering programs and then having sort of the resources of a liberal arts college. So that's why I was keen on it. And ROTC, I just wanted to pay for college. I have a twin sister, you know, and my brother said, oh, I had, um, my parents had 10 years between my older brothers and my sister and me. And I felt like I was spending my parents' retirement money to go to college, and I didn't want to be a financial burden to them. So I wanted a scholarship. And I actually incorrectly thought that I would get lots of other scholarship opportunities to go to a place like Duke. I was a national merit finalist, for instance, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of other support. It would have been really modest, the other support that I might have gotten if I hadn't accepted the Air Force scholarship. So it was an easy choice. I just thought, I'll do this and I'll see what it's like. And I I didn't know anything about Air Force service. So I threw myself into it. I thought I have some time to figure it out before I have to actually commit because exactly. at the time it's changed over the years. But at the time it was a full scholarship to any school you got into, the sort of ticket that I got from the Air Force. And I had a year until I returned after, actually after my sophomore year, I had two years, right? Two years back then. We, had, we had two years to figure it out. And I thought that's enough time to see if, if I can actually commit to the service as an active duty officer in the Air Force that it required. Yeah. So I'll confess to you that I had no concept of Duke basketball before I accepted my offer to go there and very quickly became a rabid fan, but I'm completely the opposite of you. I just, I just thought the campus was awesome and that was why I wanted to go. Yeah, well, you were right. It is, it was an amazing campus. And I walked around a lot of times thinking, I can't quite believe I'm in college here. Like this is really where I'm a student. Wow. So yeah. And the irony, as we both know, is that your sister went to the other half of the Duke, North Carolina rivalry. So I'm sure that was awkward at points during the basketball season for you both. For sure. And and we were happy to be in the same part of the universe because I did miss her a lot. And it wasn't as easy to see her as I thought it would be until I got a car, which wasn't my first year. So, Yeah. 
but you did get to see her fairly often because I got to know her pretty well during school yeah. and I've stayed friends with her since then. So, so one of the things I remember from your time at Duke, you played the saxophone and you got to perform with Dizzy Gillespie, one of the all-time jazz greats. I still remember that night, but what was it like for you? <laughs> yeah, I was really lucky. We had a great conductor. The leader of the Duke Jazz Ensemble was a guy named Paul Jeffries, who, who was a, a great tenor sax player himself and a pretty well-known composer who knew a lot of people. So he was the reason that Dizzy came to Duke. What I remember is that Paul and Dizzy were very late and we had to play a lot of numbers before they got there. Do you remember that part? That's I what did. I we didn't know if they would show up. So they were old friends. But Dizzy was one of other folks. John Faddis was another a great trumpet player who we also played with, actually. So Paul got us a lot of great gigs. But it's an amazing thing to play with somebody whose recordings you've listened to and who you know uh, has yeah. such a big impact worldwide. That was a gift. And I often thought, actually, from my interactions with Paul, that I, I felt a little bit like I was dabbling in jazz rather than being a real jazz musician because it wasn't going to be my life. I sort of knew that. And Paul actually at one point wanted me to play with him a small combo that was going to play some clubs. And I, I just said, I can't do this. I can't be out that late every night. I've got like all these labs. I have all these other commitments that are related to my, to the academics and to the Air Force stuff that we were doing. And I just said I couldn't do it. And it, so I felt like I wasn't as fully committed. So when I saw people like, and I wasn't nearly as talented as either of them, but it was awesome. I mean, it was a great gift to be able to encounter kind of world-class people like that when I was in, in college. It was awesome. Yeah. So after school, you went into the Air Force and your first assignment was out at NORAD. Most people probably know NORAD as tracking Santa each Christmas. Some who are old enough may remember Matthew Broderick hacking into NORAD and the movie War Games. But obviously, it's there to protect the United States and its allies from an inbound attack. In practical terms, it meant that you worked in a cave. So what was that like working there? What was the day-to-day -day of being inside the NORAD complex deep inside Cheyenne Mountain? Yeah, we worked in shifts. So I was part of the, at least for the first few years I was there, I moved into a staff job a little bit later. The operational crews, I think there were five in the mountain, they worked in shifts because we covered all 24 hours. So we either worked in eight-hour shifts or 12-hour shifts. So you were coming and going at odd times. You drive up to a big parking lot that was built on the granite that had been hewn out of the mountain to build that parking lot, actually, that we all parked on. We went through some security gates. We didn't do a retina scan, at least at first when I was there. They put those in later, actually, but we went through metal detectors. And then there was a bus that took us down the tunnel, and the tunnel went straight through the mountain. And then there were some cross tunnels in the middle. And eventually, I walked in rather than taking the bus. It wasn't that far, so... I don't know, 10 minutes, 10 minute walk or something. And eventually I ran too. Like, so when I was on staff, I had more time. When I was on shifts, our shifts were 6.30 to 2.30, 2.30 to 10.30, 10.30 to 6.30 in the morning. And you'd come in, you'd get a, a turnover briefing from the, the crew that was leaving and you'd start, you'd do all the maintenance things and then you'd wait and see if anything exciting was going to happen. And if nothing exciting happened, sometimes they'd put movies on the, you know, closed circuit TVs. It was that hurry up and wait thing that's so often true, kind of operational pace and uh, tempo in the military. And then when things happened, when there were launches or satellite maneuvers or collisions or the space shuttle was out and we were trying to keep it from running into any debris, then we'd have more non-routine work to do. And sometimes then the challenge would be getting to the routine systems maintenance stuff, for instance, that we needed to do. It was rote, but essential what we did. And yeah, um, Absolutely. And and I liked the less rote sort of things. I liked training other orbital analysts and I liked learning different jobs. I tried to get qualified into all the different jobs. 
And then when I moved into a staff job, eventually I could get out. I had more regular hours, you know, working sort of ordinary office hours and I could get out in the middle of the day and I could run. It was fun to run down the mountain and then back up. I liked that. And it was beautiful. It's um, just south of Colorado Springs on a beautiful mountain out there. So it was, it was pretty. So I loved living in Colorado. That was my first chance to really be there then. I don't know if you remember, you actually took me into NORAD one day. I got the tour and it's just one of those like cool experiences that you only get if you know somebody in the Air Force who happens to be there. So I appreciated that at the time. No, I tried to take everybody in that I could. So, and you got to see the blast doors that, you know, are outside the, and the buildings are on big springs with the idea that a wave from a blast would actually not shake them all apart at the same time. But ultimately we thought we'd be so multiply targeted by re-entry vehicles that it would just melt on top of us if we were in there. So there wasn't really a lot of hope for that place surviving, but it was mm. a monument to that earlier phase of, uh, the, of, the, of Cold the Cold War era. Yeah. So then you went and taught at the Air Force Academy. So what, what was that like? You were teaching history, right? I was. Yeah, that was completely different. The Air Force Academy culture was uh, not at all like what it, like it had been to work on ships or to work in space operations in Space Command, U.S. Space Command or Air Force Space Command. But it was completely fascinating. You know, it's a crazy culture, the um, service academy culture, yeah. very intense. Cadets are, it's a kind of total institution. Unlike when we were in ROTC, you know, we wear a uniform once a week and we were aware we were cadets and had additional obligations but it didn't dominate your life in anything like the way the no. service. And it's these young people don't decide which uniform to wear, short sleeves or long sleeves, or, I mean, everything is dictated. And uh, there's tremendous stress. I remember just realizing that difference. I had not appreciated how different academy graduates college experience was from my own until I got there. And then teaching was great fun, but also strange. I mean, we taught there were, there were a couple of required history classes, world history and military history, neither of which I had ever studied in college or graduate school when I got there. And I was suddenly teaching both of those classes. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had studied a little military history as an undergrad at Duke. I took a, there was a famous military historian there, Ted Roth, who I studied with, didn't particularly like the class actually. And then I studied with I.B. Hawley, who commissioned me actually, who was uh, a general in the Air, a leading intellectual about air power. And I, I learned a lot from him, but I took general U.S. history from him. I didn't take military history from Dr. Holly. But when I, the Air Force, I, the chance to teach was great. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. When you teach world history from the Greeks to Gorbachev, which is sort of what it was at the time, that's a lot to cover. And students are always going to say, what about this? And what about that? Because there's no way I could have, the, could have anything approaching mastery of all that different material. So I learned that students teach you a lot and the subject matter isn't, essential. You know, it's really the engagement and the, the skills that they learn and then the, the familiarity with different concepts and issues that makes them better equipped later. So yeah. it, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And it was a big time of change for me because I was coming out and realizing I wasn't going to stay in the Air Force. So I was trying to figure out how to navigate that. And that came about after I had been in grad school for a year, which the Air Force sent me to graduate school to study and get a master's so I could come back and teach at the academy. And when I left the Air Force Academy, I paid the Air Force back for, I think it was 55 days of service because I wanted to start law school on time. I didn't wait a, want to wait a whole year. And fortunately for me, the Air Force wasn't a reduction in force and they were happy to let me go. So, so long yeah. as I paid, whatever that was. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I'd gotten a master's in engineering while I was in the Air Force stationed at Hanscom outside of Boston and got into business school, wanted to go to business school, technically was committed up through like January, you know, middle of the year. but yeah, I, I was able to get a waiver and get out a bit early for the same reason. It just, they were, this was the time sort of Berlin Wall came down. 
the Soviet Union was breaking up. And at the time, the military was in a reduction mode. And you and I, I guess, in our own ways, both experienced that and also kind of got on with the rest of our lives as a consequence of it a little bit sooner than we might have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. So you were in for seven or eight years. You were in longer than I was. I was in for not even four. How did your time in the Air Force shape you as a person? And what have you carried with you from that time since then? I think in lots of ways, I can't really separate myself from what the Air Force helped me become. So a sense of service, a sense of obligation to try to do the right thing. I don't know where that came from exactly, but I definitely feel that. And I think the Air Force accelerated that. I also think a sense of community. You know, you move so much when you're in the service, you have to build community fast and you have to rely on the people that you encounter, trust them in some ways that in a way that I find the civilian world just doesn't, people don't work together as easily or as consistently as in the military. And people see more on their own and left to their own devices and to figure things out. It's challenging. As, and I know the negative consequences of the conformity that the military seeks and enforces and of the inability of many people to fit comfortably into those molds. The sense of community and the connectedness, uh, commitment to each other and serving that higher purpose, I think those are all things that the Air Force helped me with. Yeah, so you got out and went to Yale. You were doing your law degree and a PhD around basically in parallel, right? And what was your plan professionally at that point? What did you see yourself doing when you finished up at Yale? You know, it's funny. I did both degrees because I couldn't decide. And so I just, I kind of wanted to wait. I didn't want to have to make a decision yet. I wanted a little bit of time. And so for me, a little bit of time to decide was actually doing both degrees, you know, a history degree and a law degree. I um, I really didn't know, even when I graduated from law school, I really didn't know much about the practice of law and what it was like. Yale's very oriented towards academic law and, you know, graduates a tremendous number of law professors, which is one reason that I chose it for sure. I just hadn't had a lot of legal experience. But with history, I really loved history and I wanted to study more of it. But I just thought being a history professor would be like stepping out of the fray for too long and too much. I just wasn't sure I wanted to be a history professor. It felt like I wouldn't be able to have enough of an impact if I did that. So sort of split the middle and, and did both. And I wanted a bit of a break. And I'm, I'm not good at taking breaks. We were just talking earlier. I'm not taking much of a break between the current job and the next job that I'm in right now. But it did feel like a break to me to actually to be able to be in school and actually think about things and also meet completely different groups of people, you know, the history graduate students at Yale and then the law students at Yale, the Mm. faculty and the community there. Then you went into academia and while you were teaching, you also started to become more and more of an expert on military justice and gender related issues like sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. You were on a panel, what, seven, eight, nine years ago on that topic and are about to chair another one that's on military justice. So how is that kind of played out for you over the course of the time since you graduated from Yale? Yeah, you know, you have to get a uh, PhD, you have to have a dissertation topic. And it felt like I should write about military law and military justice, because I was because I came from this background of having been in the military, having studied military history. And I was adding this law to it. And there wasn't much critical work that had been done in, in terms of military justice. So it seemed like fertile ground. And then it happened that Abu Ghraib and the post 9-11 wars that the United States took on just had so much more, they brought so much more relevance and publicity to military legal things, the military commissions, the prosecutions of uh, American soldiers for wartime atrocities and other things. Plus the don't ask, don't tell piece of this and the discrimination against women in the military. 
which I had witnessed to some extent and certainly had been a part of some of those responses. I was at Cheyenne Mountain during the tailhook fiasco of 1991. And that was the same time that the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings were going on. I mean, there was a lot of attention during a time when I was thinking about academic topics and my own potential impact and direction. So I became interested in the impact of sexual violence and sex discrimination on the LGBTQ community, on people of color, on women, and also became interested in military justice and how the gender norms of the military and the emphasis on conformity that I mentioned before and on discipline and good order, how that played out in the realm of the prosecution of crime in the military. So, and then once I wrote a dissertation on it and, um, and I had a job, pardon me, as an academic, then I had a platform to actually be able to think and write about that. And that's one of the real gifts of being an academic, uh, a full-time faculty member at a university, because you actually have a chance. You do the teaching and the service work that you want. But part of my job, I also always thought, was trying to influence the direction of the law and the policies that are out there in areas that I sought to understand. So I had I had a chance to do that and testify before different commissions and hearings and that sort of thing. And I was grateful for that. That led to some of the DOD service that you talked about, which I'm glad I had a chance to do. Although I have to point out, I was not successful in the response systems panel that it was one of the panels to look at sexual harassment and sexual assault in the military and recommend potential changes. I very much thought that the military should remove commanding officers from the position of responsibility for charging decisions in criminal cases, especially sexual assault cases, because it's so difficult for a commanding officer who's concerned about the reputation of his or her unit and the military itself, the reputation of the military and branch of service itself to decide whether or not to prosecute somebody. I thought it should be in the hands of someone independent. And I lost seven to two on that. I got one other vote. There were nine members of that panel. I got one other vote, Harvey Bryant, a great prosecutor from the state of Virginia, but the rest of them I couldn't slay. I wrote a dissent, but it's changed now. And so last year that changed in one of the military justice reform pieces. And I, not because I did anything. I was just, you know, I just heard about it after the fact. So sometimes things get there, you know. You're not used to losing. <laughs> I wasn't even close. It was seven to two. Man, I couldn't get any of the others. They were all nice to me. They seemed to like me, but I couldn't persuade them. So. Beyond the shift that the military's made since then, do you, do you feel like they're making progress on these topics? I do. I also think it's uneven and fragile, like all progress towards greater recognition of the chaos of humanity and the ways people are different and can contribute in different ways. So I worry about backsliding, but I do think that there's been tremendous progress. And I think that being complacent about it would be a mistake, but to pretend that it hasn't changed is just wrong. It has changed a lot. It's much better for, for women, for people of color, for folks in the LGBTQ community. You know, trans service is a big issue. It continues to be maybe the most tussled about now. It's difficult to successfully argue the kind of protections that I think should be out there and the kind of openness that should be out there. But I do think we've made progress there too. Yeah. I mean, I think you go back to when you and I were in ROTC and in the military itself, people had kind of a mixed view at best on the military. I mean, it wasn't all that long after Vietnam. There were certain campuses where you would get told, like, you can't really wear your uniform on campus. You have to carry it with you and change in a bathroom, went to your ROTC classes. And, you know, 9-11 obviously really changed that because the population of the United States did a massive turnaround on how they viewed people in the military. I mean, and, and that largely continues to this day. And I think one of the consequences of that is people in the military felt like they had more of a platform, to use your word from a minute ago, to be able to 
talk about things. Like I think about just PTSD and just the impact that those wars had on mental health of so many people. I mean, that was true back in Vietnam, but it got buried, right? And so I think on a lot of these social issues, you know, the fact that the people of the military are kind of in a different place with the broader population of the United States, I think they've been able to accomplish more social progress as a result. Oh, I think that's a great point about mental health and mental illness and the way that wars specifically tend to play into that. And I think World War I was not unlike the Vietnam War and actually elevating an acceptance of uh, mental illness as a consequence of trauma. And I think that you're right that the post 9-11 wars definitely had an impact there too. And that the military, the military's understanding and openness to, you know, sort of the range of different mental consequences of the situations into which it sends uh, troops it's definitely changed the way civil society works. Yeah. Coming back to your academic time. So you moved out to UC Hastings, you were provost, academic dean, in addition to teaching, and then you moved to Mills and became president. What's it like to be in a leadership position in an institution of higher education? Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, but that's true really for all leadership roles the responsibility to make decisions about what's going to happen in an institution that employs a lot of people, that serves a lot of people, in this case, students, it always brings, I think, a lot of scrutiny and stress. But it's it's just a gift to be able to lead a campus. I mean, I know I have fond memories of the campuses that I've been on in the past, whether I was actually a student there, whether I was passing through. Campuses feel like refuges, like places of inspiration. It's been an awesome thing to be the president of a college and and a big responsibility. You know, I felt like the biggest thing I needed to do was continue to look ahead and make sure that we'd be prepared for what would come next, which is, I think, what the key is to being a successful leader in a lot of different organizations. People will do the work of the organization. I'm not doing that when I'm here. I have taught and I have I've done various sort of substantive things, but primarily my goal is to look ahead and try to anticipate and prepare for what might happen next and really listen to what's going on. So yeah, it's been great fun. I do think that I have more in common as a college president with other people running organizations than I do with, say, faculty members. It's just, it's a different thing to run an organization. You oh, know, absolutely. You, and I and I needed to respect and understand a lot more about people and how people work and how that thing that makes us humans, masters of the planet for good or ill, is that we can work together and try to help people work together to, to actually better pursue the mission and serve the people we're trying to serve. I think that's been great fun. Faculty are not easy to work with as constituents. At Mills, alumni or alums more generally, to be more gender inclusive, they're not always easy to work with. Sometimes mm-hmm. they remember a college that never existed. Sometimes they're more sure they understand what's happening than, than they are. But it's taught me it's taught me a lot about the importance of communication and trying to find the ways to meet people where they are and help them understand why we're making the decisions that we are, even when they disagree with some of those. Yeah. I've always thought being a university or college president was right up there in terms of a very, very difficult leadership position. I mean, you've got all the constituent groups, you know, the kids who are coming there during their formative years and doing things that kids do to get into trouble and make life not easy on the the leadership administration of the university. And then you've got their parents who are forking over a lot of money to send their kids there. And you've got the faculty who have their own views about how things should be run and you've got to raise money. It's just a tough, a tough job. And you had on top of that, just a very difficult process to go through in terms of ultimately navigating the integration of Mills into Northeastern University. 
What was that like for you going through that process? Um, grueling, incredibly eye-opening. I learned so much. I was realizing as I went through that process that I, I just had learned an entire vocabulary that I didn't know before, including when I was the president of a college that was operating perilously, but continuing to operate. And then when we moved into the merger conversations, lots of lawyers, lots of financial analysis, lots of crisis communication and management, and really needing to stay focused on what our ultimate goal was and find ways to not be deterred from getting there once we set that course out. But the management of a board through that process was also mm -hmm. something that taught me a lot. You know, the trustees, the college belongs to the trustees if it belongs to anybody, right? They're the ones entrusted with ensuring the mission of the college can continue and that the resources are stewarded responsibly and the students are served responsibly. And so bringing the board with me was a big part of that too. So I, I spent a lot of time with our board trying to make sure that they had the information and the confidence to make the decisions that I was asking them to make. So that kind of brings us to today. You've always been a driven person since the day I met you back when you were 17 or 18 years old. Would you say that you've been driven about your career itself? Yeah, I saw that in the questions that you wrote. And I thought I wouldn't think of myself necessarily in that way, but I, I don't, I don't disagree really. I always wanted to move and to get to the next thing. I've been impatient. That's been sometimes to my detriment. You know, I don't always take time and slow down and fully realize. Like, for instance, when I was an undergraduate at Duke, I never studied with one of the great women's historians who was at Duke, Ann Scott. I never took a class with her, even though my second major was history, because it just it didn't fit. I wasn't paying enough attention. You know, you just miss things at different points in your life by, by moving quickly. Likewise, I think I could have written up better in a different dissertation if I'd taken more time, but I did it really fast. So I don't know. So I have definitely wanted to get on to the next thing. And I have definitely been more comfortable with what it would be like if I were running things than if somebody else was. So I think that I've often ended up in those leadership roles because of that, that I felt like I could do it, if not perfectly better than most other people could. And because I, I didn't want to get stuck, I always wanted to get on to the next thing. Do you feel like at this point, you kind of know yourself? well enough to know what you want to do professionally? Has it changed over the years? It has changed, but it's, and it's changed because I feel like the biggest problems out there have changed. I wanted to come to Mills for a lot of different reasons, partly because it was in the right place. I had a family, a blended family. My wife was here, our kids were here and their other parents were here too. So I wanted to stay in the San Francisco Bay area and the chance to go to Mills was a place to get another leadership opportunity and have a chance to make a difference that was in the right place. So the context definitely matters too. Yeah. Um, now that our kids mostly gone off to college, Joey's still in high school right now, but that calculus has changed now. But I also wanted to go to Mills because I thought that educating women was definitely, I mean, it's one of the UN's development goals, the education of girls and women. I think it changes the world for the better to educate women and to view them as fully realized and able to contribute in all the ways that other people can. And so I love that about Mills and coming to Mills. Also that Mills was already educating a really diverse racially, socioeconomically, ethnically group of students. And I thought that that was what educational institutions of the future should look like, actually, although they hadn't always during the time that I was attending them. So it's not that I think that's not a problem now, but I feel like now the climate catastrophe and reckoning with the harms of the past are just big things that we have to reckon with together in order to move ahead. So to me, going to the National 9-11 Memorial Museum is a chance to work with incredibly dedicated, accomplished people who have managed to rebuild in the face of unimaginable loss, actually. Mm -hmm. Many from real estate and finance communities that have contributed to that effort have navigated complex political and economic waters. 
in a way that I think we're going to have to do moving ahead in order to solve the big problems that we're leaving to our kids and our grandkids. So I guess the, my sense of what the problems are changes. And I have kind of accepted that probably what I should do is this kind of thing. You know, I don't, I don't really think I'm going to go back and teach history again. I loved teaching history and I was a pretty good history, you know, teacher. I was not a great historian. Like, I, I don't think I should, I'm not going to change the grand narratives of history with the kind of research that I do. And I don't think I'll spend a lot of time in archives in the future. But I do think I've learned more about what I can and what I enjoy doing over time. Yeah, you've got, you're at a point in your career where you can have a different level of impact than you're able to have. I mean, you talked earlier about having a platform when you're a faculty member at a university or college, and there's some truth to that, but you're still largely limited by what you can conceive yourself, right? And get into your research and then write about and talk about, and you don't get that multiplier effect that you get when you're a leader of something bigger. I think that's totally right. And uh, if I had the answers, I would have fixed the things that I could have fixed. And it's just so much more complex than that. Even think about the response to the pandemic. We knew what the answers were. and We didn't manage to communicate them in ways that actually changed people's behavior in the ways that would have been the most protective of uh, public health. I don't know. I, I totally think that's that's right. I, I no, no one person can do it. So what are the strengths that you've been able to draw on again and again in these many different things that you've done over the years? Oh, a lot of people help me. I mean, that's a good thing. So for whatever reason, people are willing to help me. I think that always makes a big difference. You have won people over again since the day I met you. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I can't believe you lost that vote seven to two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never had a chance. And I've been in those situations too, where it's just stacked in a particular way. The interest that people come into a particular conversation with, sometimes they're just set. You just can't always do it. So I've been there when you can't always win people over. So I don't know. I realized that my sort of psych profile helps me in these jobs. I remember when I was at Hastings, which is no longer called Hastings, by the way. Now it's UC College of Law, San Francisco, because of the genocidal background of Serranus Clinton Hastings, who that okay. school was named after. But there was a student who asked me right after I became the provost and academic dean there. And he said, Professor Hillman, what keeps you up at night? What are you most worried about You know, now that you have this job? And I remember that I said to him, nothing keeps me up at night about this job. Because if, these, if stuff about this job kept me up at night, I wouldn't be the right person for this job. So I actually think I have a psych profile and I was being relatively honest. Now, things have kept me up at night at different points in time, for sure. Yeah. Professional, personal things, world things, all the rest that bothers everybody else. But mostly I can let things go. And I think that really helps because if I retained more of the, the pain and the duress and the challenge and the disappointment that happens around me, then I wouldn't be able to keep going. And uh, that's definitely helped me. Yeah. Being able to let it go is definitely a skill for sure. What have you worked on developing over the years? Listening. I mean, I think I've realized it's just much more important to listen, which is weird. You're having to listen to me. So I'm sorry about that. But I think that the more I can listen in a meeting, the better the meeting went. And the better the person who's in the meeting with me feels like it went almost all the time. And I like framing things for folks. And I like being able to put a conceptual sort of spin on things that helps people understand. I think I am good at that. But I really think listening is the thing that matters the most to people. What do you look for in people that you surround yourself with professionally? Oh, I'm so particular, honestly. So the people that I really, but I love to be around curious people. I like people who don't give up. I like the intensity of really trying to understand. I can do the small talk stuff that you need to do sometimes, but life is too short to not go deep. And Mm -hmm. we did that from the start when we were in college, right? That's how we made such great friends so quickly because it's suddenly serious. You get to talk about the things and become yourself in a pretty intense way. 
you've talked a little bit about people who've helped you along the way, but who really stands out for you over the years that's helped you sort of get to where you are today? You know, there's so many people that I can mention there. So, but most of them, my family mattered tremendously. My family of origin was just really supportive. I have a twin sister who's a fabulous person, smarter and nicer than me, as you know. My parents were really supportive. My brothers were complicated, but also taught me a tremendous amount. And I love them dearly too. And my brother, Chris, continues to be a tremendous inspiration to me. But, you know, the people who I learned from the most, I think, are the ones who made me see things that I couldn't see otherwise, that I just didn't really. People that we met at Duke who just had traveled and who had you and your terrific grades. I was like, wow, you can actually get grades like that. Like somebody I know can get perfect grades. Just seeing people do things that I didn't realize were possible made a tremendous difference to me even if I didn't do them, because I knew it was possible. I knew that person and I knew something about who they were and they were able to do it. But Drew Faust made a big difference to me. She was oh, yeah. teaching at Penn when I went there. I was initially assigned to a different master's thesis advisor and I ended up switching to Drew. And we stayed close over the years. And she went on to be the president of Harvard and she did tremendous things. So that it just makes things seem possible. You know, like there's not that gap and that upside that would keep you from being able to continue to move ahead. And that's continued to happen for me over time. And I know Michael Wagner, a classmate of mine who just passed away, I, we were talking about it recently. He just, he really opened my eyes. I mean, he traveled the world. My second major at Duke was history to electrical engineering. His second major was Russian. He right. was so he could really do just about anything. And yet he was down to earth and curious and intense and all those kinds of things in ways that I just had never encountered anybody like that before. So I yeah. think it's those people who helped, helped me see more, made a tremendous difference. Yeah, I mean, I used to, in the years where he was living in Africa and the places he would travel, it just, it just amazed me. I mean, I would sort of see his posts and his updates on Facebook. I would think probably mainly Facebook. And it was just always amazed that just the broad variety of experience he had and how much traveling he was doing. You know, he was one of those people that I really thought just looked up to in terms of just their ability to kind of be of the world, truly of the world. Absolutely. Any final career leadership thoughts you want the audience to take away today? No, it's really good to connect to you again, JR, actually. That's been a gift for me in this conversation. And I don't know, as I thought about this and thinking about this interview, I think that my time in the academy was a little bit of a deviation from what I really should have been doing. I'm not sure that I should have been cooling my heels in PhD and JD programs for as long as what I did, because I think I've been able to do more outside of that academic realm. But I don't regret it at all. I learned a lot. And there's, my career's had a lot of zigzags. I mean, I'm sort of all over the place in what I've done in many ways, but it's, it's always felt authentic and true to me. I guess I'd just say that for me, the most important job that I've always had has been the one that I'm in, because being successful in the job that I'm in right now has been what's given me the opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do next. And losing sight of that is, I think, a risk as you start to look ahead sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the point you made earlier, you know, sometimes you look ahead so much that you sort of lose focus on the present or appreciation for the present. Oh, I've definitely become more appreciative of things as I've gotten older too. Uh, we're talking about loss right there with Mike passing away too young. Yeah. You, know, you never know how much time you'll have and every day is a gift. And so I definitely appreciate that more. And I try to celebrate those small triumphs and things that come along when they when you can celebrate them because it's really worth it to let the people around you know that what they did really mattered too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's end on that note. Beth, thank you. It's been great hearing a little bit more of the color and some of your zigzagging over the years. Thank you, JR. Good luck to you. And I appreciate the chance to talk to you.
Yeah, absolutely. And good luck with the new job when you start in October. Thank you. It was great reconnecting with Beth and getting a chance for her to share her impressive career journey and her learnings along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.